0: All right. Well, good morning, and welcome to our life group on parenting children. Let's talk today about, I think, something extremely important, and I think even a little confusing. And that is, at what point do you cross the line from discipline to abuse? So if we're going to discuss discipline versus abuse, I think we need to define our terms. So discipline would be correction. Correction is necessary. The Bible gives many instances where a child needs correction. I'm going to read a few for you. The Bible tells us that, uh, Proverbs 22, verse 15, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. So children need correction. This idea that kids will find their way to success uh, is deceiving, and I'll tell you why. Because there are always going to be the rare child where you put them in any condition and they will come out stronger. Those kids exist. These are the leaders. These are the world changers. These are the kids who grew up in the slums, who kids who grew up uh, in, in very abusive homes. They grew up with, with next to nothing, and they just push through. God has put inside these children a, a self-confidence, a desire to thrive that is just beyond their years. And so we look at these rare children, and for whatever reason, we want to make them the rule. Oh, well, if they can do it, anyone can do it. Well, no, they are an exception to the rule. Most children are so extremely affected by their environment that you can see how their environment changed them, shifted them, uh, made them into the people that they were. So I've talked with parents, and um, I've often heard parents like to use their best and easiest child as an example and proof of their good parenting. (laughs) If you have enough children, chances are higher, you'll get one of these rare scenarios. You know, you got four or five, six kids. You'll have a child who will push through what most kids aren't willing to push through. And as long as you're not a complete failure as a parent, this child will do well. And parents like to look at that child and say, man, I'm a good parent. What's wrong with the rest of you kids? (laughs) Well, The real truth is you're not really a great parent. This kid is just an exceptional child. And your parenting is displayed in the other children who are easier affected by your parenting than the one who no matter what you're going to do and how you're going to treat them, they would be successful. They will be successful. And so... We, who work with children, like to use these rare children as, as examples to everyone else and thinking, you know, look at this child, look what they can do. I'm not that bad. Everything I'm doing is okay. There's no need for me to change. This child turned out all right. But we've got to understand that all children need correction. And although there might be the rare ones who will seek success and find it outside of your active correcting in their life, Most kids need correction, on a regular basis, correction. The Bible tells us that um, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 13, withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. That word beat with the rod uh, today would give an implication of abuse, you know, beating the child with the rod. We need to understand that that word as it was written back then, did not imply abuse. It meant a physical correction. If you apply physical correction to the child, he will not die. That is what is being said here. Not if you beat the kids silly, they'll wake up the next day and everything will be okay. Unfortunately, sometimes things can be lost in translation, and it's not the fault of the original penman. It's not the fault of God who put the words. It's the fault of our culture who has taken words and, and placed in those words a definition that was not originally intended. So we're not talking about abuse in this passage, but we are talking about a physical correction. Did you know that most cultures, all the cultures I know, so I'm going to say most because I don't know all cultures, all the cultures I know include some form of physical correction. Uh, you look at cultures, and they, and they do it differently. I, I'm aware of a culture that uses a flip-flop as a form of a correction. I think that, that it's tossed across the room. It's used to smack your behind. I was never... Accosted with the flip flop in my life, you know, for me it was something different. But whatever, whatever your culture uses to get your attention, right? And so it's going to look different in every culture. It needs to. Be, we're going to talk about that today of, of what not crossing the line, allowing your culture to tell you what is appropriate, but recognizing that God's word states there is going to be some physical correction, and it is okay. But we'll talk today about how that is kept um, under control, and then in. Um, uh, Proverbs chapter 29 in verse 15. This is the last one we'll read this morning. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. When I came to this school 10 years ago, I had already been in a previous ministry, been in a couple of previous ministries, and already knew full well that how you start off your time in a ministry is is going to play a lot in how people will see you going forward. It's really hard to eliminate that first impression, right? Have you noticed that in a company, in a relationship? It, it, not that it can't be overcome. I've talked to some. Um, I think, Sarah, you mentioned you weren't too fond of Miguel at the first time, right? But you guys overcame that, and you're not the only relationship I've heard that of that said. Like, you didn't click right away. The first, the first uh, impression wasn't a strong, good one. But it was overcome. But for many people, it's too hard to overcome that first impression. And there is no turning back. And so I wanted to make sure that when I came here in a Christian school setting, I was establishing what I wanted to maintain. I didn't want to start off in something I wasn't willing to keep. I didn't want to start off and change later. A lot of people tell you when you start off in a new position with children or any leadership position, start off strong And then you can let off from there. I get that. I understand that philosophy. My desire was to start off balanced and then just maintain balance. That was what I did. And that's what I've been doing, trying to do for 10 years. I didn't start off as a hard overseer and then over time, you know, slacking laid back and and then kids see me as something completely different than they did 10 years ago. I would imagine if you were to ask a student who was here 10 years ago and a student today, of course, there would be some differences just because I'm older. But the style with which I dealt with students would be very similar. It was a balance of mercy and truth. And that's what we're going to be discussing today is a balance of mercy and truth. And you don't have to start off strong and and end weak. You could start off where you need to have been the whole time and just continue there. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't get that. And so they start off strong. And then they realize, I need to back it up a little bit. But by the time you back up your discipline, by the time you back up the harshness of your correction, you've already lost that child. You've probably lost the adult, whatever relationship that you find yourself in. And so we need to understand that our first impression with our children is when they're young. You don't get to replay that. You have a couple of years with your child when they come into a self-awareness and their memory doesn't reset every three months, right? Like my son Drake, if I asked him things for three months, he'd be like, huh, yeah, what? He's only three and a half. His memory doesn't go back that far, three, five months. And praise the Lord for that. Some traumatizing things happen when you're an infant, right? So his memory doesn't go back that far, but by the time they get to a certain age, their memory starts retaining things, and then your, your impression upon them, they will never forget. And when it is a harsh impression, overly much, It often results in trauma, and this child takes that trauma with them for the rest of their life. And you do not, as a leader of children, ever want trauma attached to you as an adult. Why? Because if you are the cause of their trauma, then you are very unlikely going to be the cause of their success. A child, if they see you, shrinks in fear. If when they see you can only think trauma, then their mind literally will not function on a healthy, reasonable way because when they see you, that trauma affects their emotions so strongly they can't think the same. Have you been traumatized by a family member, a parent, um, a grandparent? Have you been traumatized by a pastor? When you are in their presence, have you noticed That your brain doesn't work the same way? Have you noticed that your emotions, the the things that you feel, are not what you feel on a normal, healthy day? And so if you want to bring your child to success, they cannot be traumatized in your presence. So a lot of people instinctively know that, and therefore they say, I'm not going to traumatize my child, so I'm not going to discipline my child. Well, that results in a different kind of trauma. It doesn't result in in a trauma that is in any way attached to abuse or uh, overly harsh discipline. It results in trauma they inflict on themselves. And you allowed it. When you say, Pastor Russ, I mean, what's the winning game here then? Either I I correct them and they're traumatized by me, or I withhold correction and they traumatize their own lives. They traumatize themselves. And by the way, kids... Who caused their own trauma can't really run from that, right? I mean, at least if it's someone else causing their trauma, they can escape that. They can find sanctuary with an adult that they trust, with someone who can counsel them through that. When a child is the cause of their own trauma, their own bad choices, no matter where they go, that trauma follows them on a much deeper level than when the trauma has been caused by someone else, And so when you do not correct a child, when you withhold that discipline, you are essentially hoping for the best, but you shouldn't. You need to expect the worst because the worst is more likely to happen. That child will spiral downward into a pattern of self-destruction and self-trauma that they will not probably ever fully overcome. So your desire to have a good impression on your young children. Well, they're only three. They're only four. They're only six. You know, you could say that they're only eight. You could say they're only 12. You could say he's only 17. He's not an adult yet. You could say they're only, really, up until like their 20s. It's hard to say it when they're 30. They're only 33, right? But they're only 20. They still have a lot of life ahead of them. We could use that excuse until this child is way past the point of successful return. We need to recognize that we only have one first shot with young children. Nieces, nephews, grandchildren, children, we've only got one first shot with them. And when their brain starts going into a cycle of remembering longer than like, you know, two weeks, you can't erase that. There's no going back. My suggestion is when working with young children, you don't need to start off overly harsh. Because then that child will see you as overly harsh. Even if you back it up, their mind will always go back to But. I remember what I saw with them originally I was reminded this week of just how overbearing the presence of an adult could be without even nothing else at play so there was a problem as there often is in our school with with students um, just not paying attention things happening it happens all the time of all ages high school down to preschool and there was a young child who was struggling with their ability to follow direction of the teacher and so the teachers called me and I went outside, and I called the student's name, and I walked up to them, and as I'm walking up, calling the student's name, hey, you know, and I'm, you know, come on next to me, I want to talk with you. As I walked up, the, literally the child looked at me and started crying, like immediately, just started crying, and would not stop crying for 15 minutes. I'm ju- I just finally sat down to try not to be as imposing, because, you know, you're standing over this child, <laughs> call, calm down, calm down, we need to talk, it's all right, just listen, and this child's just crying, like, loudly, so I sat down, so I'm not overbearing on this child. And after about seven minutes, the child finally started to come out of there crying, and I was able to help this child bring them to the teacher, and we were able to figure out what needed to be done. But we just got to recognize it doesn't take much. Our voices are strong and more powerful than a child. Our presence is strong and more powerful than a child. Our force, so if you're going to use... What is it called? What's the what's the the flip flop called? Does someone know? What is it? La chancla. Okay. If you're gonna chuck that la chancla, remember that (laughs) didn't give me the motion there. Remember that your strength is more than maybe you understand it to be. If you're gonna use whatever it is you're gonna use, I know back in the day it was a switch. You literally cut your own switch. You cut your own branch off the tree. I was told by my parent that was what they had to do. My dad uh, chose to use a belt, and I guess there's a variety of other options in between. You've got to understand that the force with which you use would not hurt you, but a child is not you. And the purpose of correction when it comes to physical correction is not to beat the snot out of these kids. It's not to beat the wrongness out of these kids. It's to get their attention. How much force, physical force, is necessary to get the attention of a child? In my experience, most children, little to none. I'm not saying you shouldn't use some kind of physical discipline. The Bible speaks of physical discipline within reason. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying in most homes, it's probably overused. Most children need very little, if any, physical redirection. And those who do, you got to watch out because those who do often need a lot more than maybe uh, the other kids do. And then sometimes in our minds, because that child needs more, we give them a whole lot more. And now you've gone into the realm of abuse. You've passed that line. Because if your child does not respond to a... A reasonable amount of physical correction then you need to use a different method of correction <laughs> you cannot say well reasonable amount of physical correction doesn't work with my child so i'm going to step into the unreasonable amount of physical correction no now you've stepped into abuse and you've justified it because your kid is strong-willed because your kid has a strong posterior or whatever right it just doesn't hurt them well don't go into abuse because your kid's tough Choose a different method. And there are a variety of methods that are available to you that don't require you to, to wail on your child who happens to have a muscular body or a strong um, ability to, to, to handle pain. So when it comes to trauma, a child can be traumatized in more ways than just the physical. You can overdo it with the verbal. The story I gave you this week was I was not yelling at the child. I was not raising my voice. I was just calling the child's name, saying, hey, come here. I want to talk with you. Let's chat. And that child started crying right away. So we need to understand that not all discipline is equal because not all children are equal. You cannot discipline all of your children the same way. You cannot discipline all the children in your life the same way. You need to have wisdom to see what are the needs of that child, what is their strength, what is their weakness, and if their strength is a high tolerance of pain, then I personally would not use physical discipline on a child whose strength is a high tolerance of pain. I would not. Why? Because a reasonable amount of physical discipline will do nothing for this child. I've just wasted my breath and hurt my, m- myself more than I've hurt them. That would be a true statement in that case. So I would use a different method that affects that child more. There's also something else that I think you need to recognize. Do you know your child's love language? If your child's love language is words of affirmation, I can tell you that what would hurt them more is verbal correction. If your child's love language is physical touch, what would hurt them more is physical correction. I'm not telling that to you, So that you would use physical correction on a child whose love language is physical. I am telling you that be aware of that and understand that if that's their love language, you need to be very cautious on using any form of correction that is their love language. That is what I'm telling you. Not to take advantage of it. Not to say, oh, well, my kid would be more affected by the physical because their their love language is physical. No. Now you're more likely to cause trauma. I'm not saying you can't physically correct. I'm saying definitely don't overdo it. And choose a different method, if at all possible, then what is your child's love language? If your child's love language is quality time, uh, grounding them, sending them to their room by themselves, that would be a very hard thing for them to accept. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm not saying you should do it. I'm saying don't overdo any form of correction, but especially when it's their love language. Don't overdo it. And you are more likely to overdo correction in their love language than any other's. You've got to be extra cautious when using correction that is the love language of that child. That gets really hard when you've got a lot of children in your life. Students in your classroom. Children in, in the junior church. It's really hard to keep track of what is everyone's love language. So what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I try not to be extremely harsh in any of the correction forms. Obviously, we don't have physical correction in our school, but any other form that we use, I try not to be overly harsh, knowing that it could be that child's love language and it could destroy my opportunity to connect with them in the future. So now let's get into the part of discipline that I think we all need to have as the foundation of our philosophy. Remember, philosophy uh, is, the, is the why. Why are we doing something? That's our philosophy. Your philosophy of correction. Do you know what it is? Do you have one? If I was to ask you right now to write down the why of your discipline, would you be able to? And what would you say? What's the reason for discipline? Well, I'll give you a handful of them. One of them is to show the child that they're wrong. I understand that. All right. What's another one? The other one is to correct bad behavior. If I discipline them enough, I will train them like a dog. I will train them. It's not, the, the consequences aren't worth it. So do what's right so you don't get the consequence, right? It's like a dog with a shock collar. I'm not, I'm hoping you would never do that with a child. I'm just stating that in the same idea, it is instinctive behavior you're trying to instill in that child, don't do this or this happens. Okay, what other reason would you have? Well, unfortunately, this is true. But it's because you're so angry, you're going to correct that child out of anger. And that is the reason. You're not thinking to help them. You're not thinking to correct bad behavior. You are thinking, I am mad and I'm going to scream. I am mad and I'm going to chuck that thing across the room at the child. I'm going to chuck that flip-flop at him, right? It's going to happen because I'm mad. And it is out of anger. And that is a reason. And I feel that reason is a lot more common than those in this room probably want to admit in our lives and in the lives of those we've had over us. And unfortunately, correction was a whole lot more about the one doing the correcting. You made me look bad. You brought dishonor on our family. You, you disappointed me. You hurt your mother. You, you uh, make me doubt myself as a parent. Am I even a good parent? We take all this out on the child. But at that point, it's no longer about the child. It's about us. And that child ends up being the receiver of our own self-doubt, of our own anger, of our wrath. And that is not how correction looks. The philosophy of why should we correct, let me tell you mine. For my children, is the same for the children in this school. I will correct my five children at my house with the same philosophy that I would correct any student at our school with the same philosophy that I corrected teenagers when I was a youth pastor. The correction looked different because I'm not going to correct other people's children with the same methods that I correct my child, but the same philosophy is there. My philosophy for correction is that child's success. That is my why right there. When I discipline a student at our school, Do I give it attention? Do I not? Do I have a verbal correction? Do I ignore it? Uh, Sometimes a child just being a goofball and it's not worth it. That child isn't normally bad. They're just having a bad day, so I'll kind of let it go. Or do I address it? Do I address it publicly because the child's making a public fool of himself? Or do I address it privately after the class? How do I go about correcting that student? will change from age to even gender to maturity level to how long they've been here to if they know better, to how often they've done it. All those things are factors into what I will do. But the why remains the same. I will do what I do because I want that child to be successful. Now, as long as I keep that at the front of my mind, it is a whole lot easier to have what the Bible refers to as a balance of mercy and truth. Mercy and truth. When I was in college, I was a floor leader. I've said this, given this story before, but the problem was the college told me that I had to um, give out discipline to the college students. No matter what, it was not my place to determine if they if they deserve mercy or not. If I saw a problem, I was to write it down, give them a little like detention slip, and say. This is a demerit. You got it. If you want to fight it, you got to go fight it with the deans. I'm not going to change anything. I had no ability to have wisdom and show mercy. My overseers, my supervisors, literally told me that. They said, Russ, your job is to see the infraction, to write out the infraction, to give the infraction. That's it. That's your job. I was young. I was 21. I didn't really have enough reason to respond with, well, that's not biblical, because it's not. The biblical method in Proverbs chapter 3 And verse 3 says, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find good favor and understanding in the sight of God and man. Basically, if you as a leader are not giving those under you the opportunity to have wisdom of when to discipline and when not, then don't give them the authority to discipline at all. If you're giving someone the authority to correct, you have to trust them. To have wisdom to know the balance of mercy and truth, because I can tell you, for two years, my overseers told me, "No mercy, all truth. We decide, not you." It destroyed almost every relationship I had, including one with my brother. All truth, not because I wanted to, because it was my job. It destroyed every relationship. The only one that I was able to maintain was the one with my my wife at that time. Uh, she was my my girlfriend. She's the only one that stuck by me. Everyone else, my roommates, my brother, my coworkers, other floor leaders, all disliked me. And some absolutely despised me because I was all truth. And not even by choice, by force, I was all truth. Why would God allow that in my life? I'll tell you this. It was a bad time of my life, but I learned at a very young age, all truth is a horrible way to go. And so unfortunately, I probably traumatized a few college students, but you know what? The trauma you receive as a 20-year-old from another 21-year-old is not that big. They they got over it, I'm sure. But that kept me from traumatizing my own children. It kept me from traumatizing teenagers as a youth pastor. It kept me from traumatizing children in a Mid-State Christian Academy setting because I promised after graduating college I would never do that ever again. I would never be all truth ever I saw what it did, and I did not want that to be the rest of my life. So, I sought for a balance of mercy and truth, which Proverbs chapter 3 tells us, is the real key. That's when you find favor with those you work over, those you work under, and God himself. And so, I will show mercy. I will show truth, but not because I'm having a good day or a bad day. Not because the infraction was small or large. I will tell you, there are times where I will be a little stronger on the correction for a small infraction because I believe that for that child's success, coming down a little harder, they will likely never do it again. It will get their attention and not repeat it. Whereas another student who has had a series of infractions, a series of problems, I actually might be more lenient on that child Because I'm trying to allow mercy to play a part in that child's life where probably that child has not experienced much mercy. In their home, in their previous schools, they're always getting in trouble. Someone's always calling them out. They don't know what it's like to be shown any compassion. So I will show them some mercy, but I'll tell you what. If that child does not adjust at some point, that balance of more mercy than truth will start to lean towards more truth than mercy. Not because I'm getting frustrated or fed up, because I'm trying to find what is best for this child to find success. That's my ultimate goal with every student. Now, Unfortunately, sometimes, as a principal, I have to recognize that the student cannot be helped at our school. And they're dismissed. That has happened. I, unfortunately, have dismissed students as young as three years old at our school. Preschool, I've dismissed three-year-olds. And I've dismissed students who are upperclassmen, junior, seniors. And so then, as much as I would love to say I dismissed them for their success, deep down I realize that's not really true. (laughs) I can say that I've dismissed them, and hopefully it'll get their attention, and they'll see that they just can't continue this. But I also know that most of these kids go to way worse schools, and will just get a lot worse. (laughs) But at some point, as the one who's the leader, I have to make a decision about what is best for the rest of the kids that are around. You see, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, you can't always choose discipline that is best for that individual. Sometimes, and this is when it's really heartbreaking, sometimes you have to choose discipline for what is best for the others around. The book of Proverbs tells us that When you discipline a fool, the simple will learn. That sometimes we're not correcting the fool in a hope that the fool will become wise. That fool is so deep in their foolishness, you know nothing's going to change. But you correct the fool for the sake of the simple. And the definition of the simple is one who's still undecided, you might say. In their head, they haven't chosen a side. In their head, they're still figuring out what is the best course of life for me? What do I want to do? Who do I want to become? They're simple. They're not solid in their reasoning yet. And for their sake, I will do what has to be done, knowing that it's probably not best for that individual. But up to that point, I've tried to do what's best for that individual, but I can only go so long. I can only do it so much. And if you continue always thinking of the individual... And they just refuse to be corrected, then you will actually cause harm to every other child who's in that vicinity, who's watching in your family. I don't have to make this decision. My children at this point are young enough where they're not self-destructing. I've advised a lot of parents on what to do when your child starts self-destructing, and I keep telling them, your child, if you have more than one, can't be the only one you're seeing. That if your child is self-destructing in the home, your other children will be affected by that destruction. I've never been confronted with that yet, and I hope I never am confronted with it, because that must be the hardest decision a parent will ever make. Doing to your child what you know will not help them. You know it will not bring success in their life. You know that, but you do it for the success of the other children the younger children, those who are still undecided. My parents had to do that with my older brother. My older brother would punch holes in the wall. He would kick doors. He would uh, try to beat up my dad. I remember one time my dad was correcting him, and he literally punched my dad. And my dad and my brother were wrestling on the ground. My dad, at that age, he was probably like late 30s at that time. I was in uh, fifth grade. I was upper elementary. And I'm watching my dad and my brother roll around on the ground as my brother's literally trying to beat my dad up. So that was the house I grew up in my older brother self-destructing. And eventually my parents realized they could not continue allowing it for our sake. So most of my childhood memory was of my parents screaming at my brother, my brother screaming at my parents, slamming doors from both my mom and my brother because they get very angry. My brother punching walls, breaking his hand on more than one occasion because he punched walls and walking around the cast for months later because he punched a wall. My brother one time walked in the kitchen, picked up a, a sack of flour, like a five pound sack of flour and just threw it through the uh, sliding glass door and just shatter the glass door. So that's that's a childhood I grew up with. Never directed at me, but always around me. And then my parents finally, and I think too late, but they finally, when my brother was 17, they said, enough's enough. If this is what you're going to do, you can't do it here. And they sent him out of the house. And I will never forget that next day that I woke up and my brother was not in the house, was one of the greatest days of my life up to that point. That's pretty sad, isn't it? When for a young boy, one of the greatest days is when his brother left, but it was true for me. I don't know what would have happened if my parents had allowed my brother to remain at home at 18, 19, 21, 23, because they wanna help him. I'm not sure if I would be the same man that I am today. By the time my brother left, I was in eighth grade. So I still had a few more years to kind of readjust. But if I had been under that my, my whole high school career, I know it would have affected me because that's what happens. Foolishness destroys those around them. A companion of fools will be destroyed. I've not had to make that decision. I hope I never will. I've thought about it often because I've seen it often in other families. And my heart breaks for those families who have to make that choice but I have made that decision many times in our school. I love these kids. I have loved every single student that I have dismissed. And a part of my heart breaks when I dismiss them, but I do it for the sake and the health of the students still here. Why? Because of my philosophy. Discipline is for the success of the student, of the child, and if you've only got one, then you've got a whole lot of freedom to make exceptions, whatever needs to be done for that child, because you only got one. You have more than one. Now you have to understand your philosophy cannot be only applied to one child. It must be applied to all the children. And you cannot shoot for the success of one at the sake of the other. That one who is self-destructing, you give them chance after chance after chance. And the one who is seeking success is going to eventually be destroyed by the one who is self-destructing because you lost sight of your philosophy. It cannot just be towards one. When you have more than one child in your life, students, children, grandchildren, nephews or nieces, when you've got more than one child, your philosophy of discipline must be applied to all. I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to correct in a manner that is best for this child, if they're the only one, and if there's other ones, this child and the other children around. Balancing that out. I would also say that if you have adult children, you have a lot more freedom. Because adult children, if there's no other younger children in your home, adult children aren't going to cause a self-destruction of, your, uh, of their siblings if they're all adults. And you have a lot more freedom to do what you got to do as a parent. But remember the philosophy. Success of the child. That is what you need to always keep in the front of your mind. Let's pray. Father, I pray for our adults in this room, parents, grandparents, uncles, nieces, teachers. I pray that we would have a strong philosophy of discipline, that ultimately the why, the reason for what we do is not to correct the child, not to change bad behavior, but to help that child find success. The other things, correction, adjusting bad behavior, are part of that process, but help us to remember the real reason of what we're doing and to adjust our correction accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.